And we are live, totally uncensored. I am here, Mike Robles, with my special guest today and a good friend, Al Martin. Al Martin is not only a comedian, he's also an author and a club owner. And I just got your new book, Al. I don't know if you can see it right there. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Get it on it there. How I built the comedy empire in 30, 30 short years. That's all it took, 30 short years, right now? Let me ask you, so how does it feel to carry that title? New York City, king of comedy. You are the king of comedy now, Martin. Well, there's a lot of king of comedies, I guess, you know, but Bud Friedman would have the claim to that one, in my opinion, but on the East Coast, I'll take it. Yeah, no, I, I, you are, because you're the first to do a lot of things. But let's go back to the beginning when we first met a long time ago at the New York Comedy Club, right? I read That's the right. book. I thought it was a great story. I didn't know how you became, how you got involved with the New York Comedy Club. It had to do That's with the right. cancellation at Hoomerhands, right? That's right. We were, we were doing a show, and we were all scheduled with your old pal Tim Davis. Remember Tim? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we did the show. And uh, we got canceled with, with about an hour's notice, and I had to find a second place. I went, I went running down the street. Tim was on the phone at a payphone, waiting to hear from me. There were no cell phones back then, and I went up and down Second Avenue. Finally, found that place on Second Avenue on the second floor. It was vacant that night, and we we moved the. I called them. Anybody you got? This is the address. Send them there. And we wound up pulling off the show that night with about 60 customers. And the owner of the bar said to me afterwards, hey, Al, if you want to do this, please uh, come back next week. And we did. We packed the room again. And we were there at that location for five years. And that was the beginning of the Al Martin Empire, right? That's right. It started right there, totally by accident. <laughs> That's crazy. So, yeah, so you went from, like, it was basically you were doing the comedy room, right, at Hula Hands. Yeah, one night a week. And then and the next day. The guy was so happy, we added a Friday. Then we went to two shows Friday and Saturday. Then I approached this guy, Seymour Swan. I said, you know, let's do a, uh, an African-American comedy show, too, at, at late night on a Saturday. Right. And it took off. And then... Um, you know, a couple of years later, I met Ozzy Baez, and then that's when we went to Latino Laughter. We, we, we started with that, and we did a college night on Thursday with Chris Mazzilli at the time, who was working with me, and uh, it took off from there. We did Sunday Night Improv with, with Ian Pryor, if you remember him, and, right. uh, and uh, Monday was open mic, and, you know. And from there... You from there, you took it then to East 24th Street location, right? Yeah, what happened was one, one, you know, one day I came in and I got a letter addressed right. to New York Comedy Club. I opened it up and it said, you haven't paid your rent in six months. Back then, what I did was I paid the rent to the bar owner downstairs who had the whole lease. And um, we worked off his... Uh, uh, lease, you know, in his location, and what happened was that uh, he wasn't he wasn't taking my money and his money and giving it to the landlord. He was just taking my money. Wow. So the landlord, the landlord threw us out of there, and uh, I had to start running and looking for a new location again. And um, 
we wound up finding the place on 24th Street. And you did. And what I want to know is like, here's little, here's little Al Martin in the New York Comedy Club, right? And you're going up against the biggest comedy clubs in New York, right? Stand up, comic strip, Caroline's, comedy cellar. How did you compete, stay in the game? It was, it was, you know what? I'll tell you what it was. It was willingness to take on different types of shows that the established clubs weren't willing to do. You know, the comic strip had their audience. The improv had their audience. Catch a Rising Star had their audience. So I had to think a little bit out of the box. You know, one day I was hanging around with a couple of new comics at the bar, and they said to me, Al, look, we can't. We know we can't crack this lineup with Bill Hicks and with and with uh, Brett Butler and, and um, uh, uh, Louis C.K. And, 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 and that variety of comics. But what can we do to get on stage? If, if we brought an audience, this is what they said to me. If we brought an audience on an off hour, would you do a show with us? And I said, yeah, you know, and that's that was, you know, the strip wasn't willing to do that. Catch a Rising Star wasn't willing to do that. And I was like, I was like, um, I was like Fidel Castro in the mountains at Batista. You know, he he didn't he didn't want to deal with the guys in the mountains. I was the guy in the mountains. You know, I I took any business I could get, and that's what it was. You know, and we and we um, really got the ball rolling. And um, about two years later, when we wound up on Twenty Fourth Street, you know, I had a street team that was doing it for me, but they also did it for the comic strip and the uh, improv. And back then, the street teams didn't go to Times Square. Uh, what they did is they went to the office buildings, and they would go up to the top floor and work their way down and sell tickets to the receptionists. So they didn't do a very good job for me because when I asked them, why, don't you, why, why are you filling the improv and catch and comic strip, but you're not bringing anybody into my club. And they said, well, if we make your ticket cheaper, nobody's going to be interested in, in, in uh, selling the ticket because it's less money. But at the same price, they're going to go to the club that they heard of. Well, one day, two guys walk into my club, uh, Emerson Moncoup and uh, Mike, uh, Mark Wigginton, and they said, look, we've been going from club to club, and they're all rejecting us. We have this new idea of putting guys into Times Square. Would you mind if we started selling your tickets in Times Square? Huh? So, boom, you know. Um, I said, yeah. And the next thing you know, we were controlling Times Square because we were the only club in there that was being sold to tourists and office workers and stuff. So they figured out a whole new distribution thing. So if you have to look at the three things to answer your question, mm -hmm. one was the new talent showcases. We did them before anybody else. Two, yeah. selling the tickets in Times Square. And three was the advent of the Latino laughter, African-American comedy. Those three things combined put New York Comedy Club big time on the map. Which leads me to this here, where you have in a book, one of your chapters says, the comedy world stole all my ideas. Well, yeah, because, you know, it's funny. I, I was at the Montreal Comedy Festival um, one year. I think it was 94, 
1993, and I'm, st- I'm, I'm, I'm there at the festival, and they had a panel discussion. It was Bud Friedman and a few other guys, and Carrie Hoffman, it was a Q&A. Carrie Hoffman stood up and asked the question, well, there's this little club in my city, meaning us, that uh, is doing Latino and uh, African-American comedy shows. What do you think about it? Now, at the time, Bud Friedman said, well, you know, all comedy shows are the same, homogenous. There should not be any difference between the regular shows. And there shouldn't be a niche comedy. And um, so they held firm to that for a lot of years. But now there's probably not a comedy club in the country that you don't go to that doesn't have chocolate sundaes, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, they stole that idea. So you 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 created right? Am I wrong? You created bringer shows, right? Yeah, I'm blamed for that. You know, I, I did, and you know, a lot of people say, Mike, that it's exploitive, and I, I make the argument that, listen, let's say you took away every bringer show in existence overnight, you snapped your finger, no more bringer shows. Do you think most of these guys are going to make the nine o'clock lineup at most comedy clubs anyway? No. Right. So what we do is, for those that can bring an audience, it helps us as club owners to be able to pay the bills, but it also gives the people that can bring an audience an opportunity to get up on a stage in front of an actual audience. So, listen, are there bringer shows that are exploitive? Some are. Like, I never liked the theory of one guy bringing in 90% of the audience and then the producer puts them up last. You know, I don't believe in that. I also believe that, you know, what I did in those days was if a person brought a certain amount of guests, I would give them some money back so they'd actually get paid as well. So, you know, or, you know, they'd get a video of their performance. So, you know, those were the things that I kind of did, uh, you know, that was very helpful to the new comics. But. It's not for everybody, but there are so many ways, Mike, that these young comics we've created through the years for them to get on stage. We were the first to do interns. So now someone can come in, see people for a couple of hours a night, and then they get the stage time. Now, again, people say, oh, that's exploiting your comic. Yeah. All right. So I'll hire someone to do it. And then all the great comics that came through my intern program, guys like Ricky Velez, guys like... Um, uh, uh, Mike Machetti, uh, you know, uh, Pete Corriale, who all started as interns, Sam Morell, they wouldn't have gotten, you know, as much quality. Gary Greenberg, who's now writing the head writer at the Jimmy Kimmel show. These right. guys all got their start at, at, you know, interning. So interning, selling tickets, barking. I did that myself. And that's another way that people, people, were able to make guys that you probably don't know because they came in the New York circuit later on guys like Alan Fuchs and, and, and people like that who were incredible ticket sellers at times square wound up getting their start, making money, selling tickets and, um, and, uh, uh, getting out, getting their stage time, you know, produce shows. We were the first one to do that. You never saw produce shows of any kind. Everything was a house show. You know, at, at uh, Dangerfields or the comic strip or, or Catch, they didn't do let someone just produce a show at 7 o'clock or 9 o'clock. Now the dirty secret is most of these comedy clubs 
that's all they do. They do a combination of bringers on a show, and they do, um, you know, new talent to, to bring an audience to fill it in. Like, you know, Caroline's on a, on a Monday or Tuesday or even on a Wednesday will do these, you know, new talent shows, and they put a couple of pros on them, and they disguise it that way. If I'm getting a little dark, it's because I'm on my terrace, and uh, it's starting to get nightfall in New York. But, yeah, so it's those things that people accuse me of, live, uh, live TV. But it's those things that people accuse me of that have really provided a lot of opportunities for, for people as well. Right. And you also created theme shows, right? I don't think the New York comedy scene, they weren't no, doing they theme never shows. they did that. They never did a Latino show, New York's top African-American comics. We did gay shows. You know, it's a funny thing. I had a great gay show producer who she went on to incredible success uh, uh, doing uh, um, uh, shows all over the country. Um, and she once said to me, Al, we have to stop doing the the gay shows at New York Comedy Club. I go, why? She goes, well, a lot of gay people are complaining that why give the business to a straight guy? You know, let's let's give it to a fellow gay-owned venue, which, you know, I should have just pulled out my kid's card and said, hey, my kid is gay. You know, he's an owner of the club, you know? So, but, you what? know, yeah, we invented the gay show. We, we did variety shows. You know, we're singers. Uh, we we did a poetry reading night. You know, <laughs> I, I listen. The old thing. I just threw shit against the wall and see what would stick. You know. Well, a lot of it sucked, man. A lot of it sucked because you're doing well. Thank Let you. me ask you now. I, I have you know. I'm out in Texas now. There's a lot of comedians from San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, and all over the country, but they're heading to New York City. You know, to find that stage time, that dream, that crazy. What advice can you give these new comedians who are heading to New York City? What should they expect when they hit the Big Apple? Well, whether it's L.A. or whether it's New York, wherever you're coming from, make sure to have your act in place, ready to rock and roll. Okay, you, you, you know, don't come to New York, you know, and, and decide you want to come to New York and you're going to start at the open mic level because you're going to put in another five years. So develop your act wherever you are. Develop it, then go to the, the two big hubs, as I call them, L.A. or New York, and do your thing, and through word of mouth, you know, we'll find out about you. You know, now with the Internet, I, I oh, YouTube, I'm constantly watching. That's my job now. I just, you know, look for, uh, get a link, watch for the good talent, and then reach out to them to perform at my venue. And what do you look for when you're looking for, like, new talent? Well, you know, here's the thing. A lot of the club owners, they look for someone that could potentially be on a sitcom. You know, my thing has always been, I, I'm, I'm not in the sitcom producing business. I'm in the making my audience laugh business. That's what I do, you know, right. and, I, and, I, and I'll admit to it. So when some guy has worked a 40, 50-hour week and he comes to my club and orders a beer and and some uh, uh, wings or mozzarella sticks or whatever. He wants to. He wants to laugh. He's not there for that experimental comic that's going to, you know, try to work out his material. He wants to. He wants to laugh. That's what he's spending his, or, or she's spending her hard-earned money on. So we try to 
uh, you know, I have a thing. At Broadway Comedy Club, between the bar and the showroom, there are two concrete walls. If I could hear someone making the room laugh in the bar, two concrete walls away, I don't even have to see what you're doing on stage. You're a winner as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. Now, what is some of Al Martin's pet peeves? I know you have a few, Al, about comedians oh, yeah. that drive you crazy. Drives me crazy, you know. <laughs> First of all, be a professional. If you got a, a 920 spot, don't show up at 919. You know, don't show up where I got to start looking down 53rd Street and see <laughs> if you're, you know, out there anywhere because, yeah. you know, it's a minute till you go up on stage. So, you know, basically, you know, get there with sufficient time, 10, 15 minutes before you spot, and check in, which leads right. me to number two. Okay. Uh, number two is, you know, when you come in, don't check in with the MC and then get lost for 20 minutes, and then we can't find you. We've got to scramble all over the place. Where, where is this person? You, you right. know. Number three, when you come into the room and you see the bartender busy making drinks, don't come walking over and say, can I get a Diet Coke now, you know? Or number four. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of these, right? Keep uh, <laughs> going. They need to hear this. They need to hear this. Yeah. Number four, okay, don't come into the room and, um, you know, say I'm here, I'm ready to go up. And then just as the MC is ready to announce, you say, oh, I got to run to the bathroom. Take care, <laughs> of Take care of your bathroom way in advance, you know. And uh, number, I'll give you number five, too. Don't take my, you know, $100 microphone or, or whatever I, and start banging yourself on the head with it, you know, and breaking <laughs> it, you know. So, <laughs> so those are the five biggies. You left one out. You left one out. I was waiting to hear it. Uh, don't block the waitresses. That's how we make our money. <laughs> <laughs> That's very important. How about respect the light? Oh, oh, respect the light. Don't get me started on that one. Respect the light. Especially in New York. Because, Mike, the comics go from spot to spot. You know that. A lot of people right. might know. No, we don't have, the, the, in New York, the typical MC middle headliner. We right. have you know, four or five acts doing 20 minutes apiece. And right. they're running from club to club to club to club. So if you do an extra five minutes on stage because you want to get off on a laugh, you know, you're screwing up someone else's time behind you. Now, also, don't come in so late that we have to put someone else up and then you're going to go after that act because the problem is there is the shows are crafted in a certain way to maximize each comic's contribution. For instance, one night I had Todd Barry booked, and behind him I had Keith Robinson. Are you familiar with both of those comics? Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Todd is a very easygoing comic, you know, very low style on stage, a little bit low energy, but very clever stuff. And Keith Robinson, he pounds the crap out of the audience. He's right. just belly laugh after belly laugh. So one day, Keith Robinson comes in and says, look, Al, I got another spot right after this. I have to rush. I have to rush. I don't have time. Get me up first, and then Todd can go after me. And, and he finagled it where he did that. Okay. He wound up crushing, as he always does. Now, the audience level is all the way up here with, you know, <laughs> Keith Robinson's high energy. Right. And now Todd Barry, with his low energy, has to follow the guy. 
so which wasn't fair to Todd Barry because on his own he's a great comedian, right. but it screwed up his entire set. So the the, the, the kicker to the whole thing is <laughs> Keith Robinson comes off stage and he starts talking to a girl for twenty minutes. Uh, I, him. I said, I thought you were in a hurry to get out of here. That's why you finagled to go up before Todd. Yeah. And he goes, oh, I found out the spot's a little delayed. So, you know, so that's a definite pet peeve. Yeah, I've seen that so many times. Yeah, can I, can I go ahead of you? I got a spot. And the next thing you know, they're gabbing away and yeah, the, getting compliments how funny they were for the next 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you shouldn't even be here. Exactly. What are you doing to me here? Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, let me ask you. There's more and more people, I guess, more now. Everybody wants to be a comedian these days, Al. So you have more yeah. and more open mics going on. What is the open mic scene like in New York City these days? Well, New York's open mic scene is, is bursting through the roof. I mean, it's gotten to the point now we're doing open mics in the afternoon. Like, I'm not talking 5 well, o'clock. Really? I'm talking there's 1 o'clock, there's 3 o'clock, there's 5 o'clock open mics going on all over the place so people are yeah and they're packed. one o'clock really one o'clock in the afternoon because Holy new york you know you can get away with it in new york because new york's yeah. sort of a 24-hour town so you know um you know there are people working overnights they can't come so or they're working a night job so they come in the afternoon to work out their material so okay. yeah Open mics now, one o'clock, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. People don't care. They do an open mic at any time. Well, and are these guys, are they taking it serious or is it like, because you know, when me and you started, you know, we were pretty serious about what we were doing. If we had, yeah. to, had, if we had to hang out for two hours, we'd hang out for two hours. But these well, days. There is, there is some entitlement. Some of these people, they, you know, they want to, they don't want to pay the dues. And it's a lot of times the older comics, you know, a lot of times you get a guy or a gal that starts at 35 or 40, you know, they don't have the time. They usually have a day job. They don't have the time to stay till two in the morning. So they get very impatient and they give it up. But comedy, comedy doesn't know or care whether you have a day job, whether you have a wife or whether you have a kid, which kind of brings me to that golden rule that the way you're going to succeed best in comedy is to um, travel light, you know, no wife, no kids. I can't tell you how many comics marriages get broken up because they're traveling on the road or they're there. So when I started, the good thing is I really had nothing going on socially. So comedy, I was able to really, you know, devote myself to comedy and it it wasn't till I was established years later that I said, "Okay, now I can, now I can go and, and look for someone to be in a relationship with." But comedy is all-consuming when you start out, and if you think that comedy is going to wait for you, you know, because you know your kids need a babysitter that night, and your wife wants to go out or some, something like that, it doesn't work that way. You know, it doesn't care that. You live on uh, upstate New York, and there's only one open mic a week. You got to figure out a way to get stage time. So it's it's a uh, it's a tough baby being a stand-up comic. It's not easy, and especially like you said, if you're in a relationship. I mean, as cruel as that sounds, you know, comedy is like that other woman. You know, it's like that other person. You know, and uh, I, yeah. I hate I hate to say it. I remember a comedian once asked me, "Hey, man, 
what I got to do to be successful, so on and so forth, more or less like that. I said, well, it depends. At different levels of success, you know. Right. I said, you know, if you really want to make it to the top, you might have to divorce your wife, leave your wife. Yeah. <laughs> are you willing to do that? And they looked at me like, what, what are you talking about? I'm just saying. You're you right. I, you listen, know. Mike, I had a guy at an open mic. He once came over to me and he said to me, uh, hey, Al, uh, let me ask you a question. I really think that um, I, I, I'm really, I, no, I asked him, how are you doing? And he goes, oh, Al, I can't tell you. I'm so happy. I got a great wife. I, I inherited a great business from my dad. Uh, things are going good. I got my health. Everything is good. I mean, I got great kids. He goes, right. what do I need to do to make it? I said, get rid of all that shit. You know, because, right. you, you know, you're not hungry enough to make it. You know, you got to be that guy living in your parents' basement and hate it. You got to be that, that girl that's working in a job you can't stand. And, you, you know, you want to get out of it. You want to make it as a career it's all consuming no it is it's sad but that's that's comedy man if you really 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 want it there's going to be sacrifices that have to be made you know yeah yeah no just sure. a little wake-up call for people just in case if you really really want to get serious about it you know there will be sacrifices it's not like you know and you stand up and the next thing you know everything you know is put on a silver platter there's going to be a lot of sacrifices there. i'm going to put on my flashlight and see if it uh, kind of lights up things a little bit here. Oh my God! Look, it looks like that movie. What's it called? Yeah, look, look who's back! Al Martin's back, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, there we go. I'm back. Hey. Okay. Note to self: Do not do a show again on the terrace because it gets dark. <laughs> I know you're looking good now. You're looking good. So yeah, so so back to this open mic thing because, like I said, you know, as far as you know the difference between now and then and so forth. What is one of your golden rules you have as far as open mic is? It's more than just showing up and doing a set, right? What else should they be doing well, while they're there at the open mic scene? The great part of open mics, which people don't take or are able to work with enough, is the social aspect of open mics. Mm -hmm. You know, you do open mics. Like, I did open mics with Judah Friedlander, Seymour Swan, um, uh, Sarah Silverman was an open micer, Chris Murphy, and every one of those people later on in my life contributed in one way or another. You know, Seymour Swan, we wound up partnering up, and he did that uh, African American show at the club. Ozzy Baez was, you know, doing open mics, and he wound up doing the Latino show. Chris Murphy became a very good friend and a very close friend of mine. And he did, uh, you know, he, he helped bring a lot of acts over from the improv in the early years because he was a shift manager at the improv. And uh, he brought over Brett Butler. He brought over uh, Mike Sweeney. Uh, he brought a lot of people over, Liz Winstead, uh, Mike Royce. And he brought a lot of these people over, and they wound up making a big difference in our lineups and, and the respect that we got as a club. So... If I can say anything to open micers, mm -hmm. be social, and because you'll find out where are the other open mics. You know, back then as an open micer, I befriended one open micer who said, "You know, there's a really cool place on Sunday nights called Shooting Stars, which you're very familiar with." Yeah, definitely. Yeah, in Westchester, Frank D'Amico, mm -hmm. remember, uh, Chips Cooney, all those Just, guys. 
John Saliano. Uh, there was, yeah. Yeah, Skip yeah. Palmer. And so Skip, yeah. I got to meet Skip at their open mic on Sundays, and he wound up putting me up at Dangerfields. You know, so that's my first experience over at Dangerfields. Right. And, uh, you know, Chips Cooney to this day, I talk to. As a matter of fact, I'm having lunch with him tomorrow locally that's out great. here. Uh, we both got a lot of time on our hands. So, little Chips Cooney. You mentioned Sarah Silverman. I know she's in the book. You want to tell your Silver, Sarah yeah, Silverman story? Uh, we opened mic together, but it wasn't exactly a positive experience a few years later uh, because she actually accused me <laughs> of <laughs> female comics less than male comics. Now, Mike, you work in New York. Can right. anybody get away with a, a paying a comic less uh, than another comic on a, on a main show? Uh, basically, what that was was a complete misunderstanding. One night, again, Todd Barry is in the story. Todd Barry comes into the club to do a regularly scheduled paid spot. And Sarah Silverman's a good friend of his, was hanging out with him. And Sarah saw the audience was explosive that night. And she said to me, Al, would you mind if I do a few minutes on stage? And, you know, it was a guest spot. So I said, if you want to, fine. And I was happy because she was just getting some heat on SNL. And I thought it would be a nice treat for the audience. And, you know, she wound up performing. So she gets off stage. She meets Todd Barry in front of the club. They start talking. And all of a sudden, she comes storming back in and goes, Al, you know, and I decided to give her some cab fare, you know, 10 bucks for cab fare. You know, and it wasn't obligated to. It was a guest spot. She came back and she goes, why'd you pay Todd $50 and you paid me 10 And wow. I said, well, first of all, that, he had a paid spot. You had a guest spot. I wasn't any under any obligation to give you anything. You asked to go up. It's, it's like asking someone to give you a job. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. So she held that against me. We had a big fight there. She held it against me for 15 years. All of a sudden, <laughs> she, does, yeah, she does an interview with this thing called Salon, which is some kind of website or magazine of some sort. And the topic they were talking about was the wage gap, how women get paid less than men. And she goes, I'm going to tell you a little interesting story about the wage gap. I did this little club in New York, and <laughs> she started trashing me. But. All of a sudden, my phone is lighting up, and mm -hmm. I'm getting these text messages. Did you hear what Sarah Silverman said about you? Blah, blah, blah. So I listened to it. I was horrified, you know, and I wound up making my own little video on my iPhone, and I put it out on the Broadway Comedy Club uh, and New York Comedy Club websites uh, and Facebook pages. The next thing I know, people picked up on it. It wound up going viral. There were like 250,000 views on this thing. And, you know, I kept emphasizing it was a guest spot. As a matter of fact, we wound up making T-shirts called Guest Spot, you know. Okay. And I was interviewed by a bunch of magazines, a bunch of uh, uh, TV talk shows, uh, radio shows. The next thing I know, Good Morning America calls me, and they want to do an interview. Wow. So I did the interview with Good Morning America. Now, Sarah was getting trashed online. Okay. Uh, the support that came out for me, I thank everybody to this day, was incredible. And they they were all supportive of me. And um, they must have, you know, Good Morning America must have called her people and said, look, we got this interview we did with this wage gap story. And 
do you want to comment on it? Because we're going to air tomorrow. So her people must have gotten totally panicked because no, I had two people that came that were witnesses. One of them was Chris Murphy that came to my defense and said, hey, listen, <laughs> what she said didn't happen, you know. Yeah. And um, Todd Barry remained silent on the whole thing. He never talked about it. And um, she knew she was in trouble. And she wound up issuing an apology the next morning before the Good Morning America thing even aired. Okay. So Good Morning America moved into its online version, you know, and uh, I, I never aired on the show, but uh, she wound up apologizing for it. And, uh, you know, we haven't spoken since then, but, um, you know. Now this happened at the New York Comedy Club. Brooklyn. <laughs> that's know? right, that's right. You're from Brooklyn, right? I'm from Brooklyn, man. You know, I'm not going to sit there and, and take a lie against me, a slanderous thing against me, laying down, you know. And that's what I like about you, because I know as a club owner and as a friend, you would sit there in front and it could be, I don't know, an open mic walking through the door or it could be, I don't know, Damon Wayne's walking through the door. It didn't phase you. If either one bothered you with the attitude, you would probably say something. Yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> that's why I get in trouble all the time. You know, I just don't have patience for nonsense. But, you know, to those- Was there like a big celebrity that walked through the door that just rubbed you the wrong way? You said- I don't, I don't like this. I don't like uh, this guy, but you know. You know, Jim Gaffigan used to rub me the wrong way for whatever reason. You know? Jim Gaffigan, really? Yeah. Jim he's Gaffigan. so quiet. He's from the Midwest. Why would he rub yeah, you the wrong way? He's got an anger to him, you know. He's got a little bit of an anger on, on him. <laughs> you know, right now he's going through personal things in his life, but, you know, there was a time one, one night. You remember a guy named Brad Trackman? Oh, yeah, yeah. A little Brad yeah. Trackman. Mm -hmm. Brad Trackman. Well, he was doing, he was managing a couple of nights for me at the club. And one night after he closed New York Comedy Club, he went down to the Comedy Cellar just to watch more comedy. He was starting out, and he was wanted to be like a sponge and get as much experience and knowledge by watching those great comedians over there. And like 1.30 in the morning, he's like sitting on the side, and Gaffigan gets on stage and sees him and says, you work at New York Comedy Club for Al Martin, don't you? Yeah. And then he goes into a 10-minute tirade against me, you know, Jim Gaffigan, so from the stage. So, uh, you know, we had a little history with stuff. You know, the problem with Jim was that, you know, you see Jim Gaffigan now as a great comic, but when he started out, he was still learning his craft like anybody else. And he felt he was ready for prime time a little bit before I thought he was ready, you know. Now, apparently I was wrong on that because the seller was putting them up late night. I still didn't pass them. But as a club owner, sometimes you make that mistake. Sometimes you look at someone and say, not my cup of tea. But, you know, other clubs might find them interesting. And they go to stardom and they, they remember that, that you didn't put them on early on. But that's part of being a club owner. You know, you, 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 get, you make some good calls and you make some bad calls. Right. Now, do you have a relationship with him today, or pretty much you don't talk with him? Uh, we don't really talk much, you know. If, he's, if he wants to work on material in front of a packed audience, he's more than welcome to come over anytime. But he could probably do that at any club that, you know, doesn't have a bad relationship. You know, the great thing about Broadway Comedy Club, and it probably won't be that way now for a while uh, because of tourism, is Broadway Comedy Club, being in Times Square, got a great cross-section 
of America. You know, you've got people from the South, you got people from New York. It was a, a very good tourist club. It's right on 53rd Street and what? Give them the address. 53rd and what? 8th, right? 53rd and 8th. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to go out there and work on an act that's going to play all across the country, there's no better audience to try it with than at Broadway Comedy Club because yeah. they're mostly tourists and are. You know, the, the, like I said, the dirty secret is there's only four or five clubs in Manhattan that on their nine o'clock show is putting up all pros. Right. That's, you know, Broadway Comedy Club, Greenwich Village Comedy Club, um, uh, the Comic Strip, the Comedy Cellar, uh, and, you know, uh, maybe one or two others, but most of them do a mixture of people bringing an audience and pros. It's not purely a professional show. Broadway right. Comedy Club, our 9 o'clock at 10.30 show mm -hmm. is virtually all pros. We don't, uh, you know, we might put up an intern here or there that's earned their way, you know, and, and we want to give them a shot and we'll let the audience know that. But generally speaking, it's, um, you know, um, all pros all the time. Yeah. I remember doing a set there for Comedy Time because you take the Comedy Time series out of That's there. That's right. That's and I remember right. being there, and the audience was a mix of people from the Bronx, Canada, and Sweden. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They it was beautiful. All, all over the country. So, yeah. you know, you had all sorts of people. And that's why comics love it because if you're getting like the guy like, and in the early days when we opened up Broadway Comedy Club, mm -hmm. uh, Jim Gaffigan, he was there every single night, you know. He, he used that stage to hone what he was going to take on the road. I mean, listen, right. you can't take that away from him. The man is knows his market, knows his niche. He's very funny with, with, with what he does. And you can't argue with the success that he's had, you know. But I like a different kind of comic. I like him a little more edgy, you know. I'm an edgy kind of comic guy, not a... Well, name some. Who are some of the edgy ones that you like? Well, maybe I that we know him, or maybe I that we don't know I loved Sam Kinison. I loved, uh, you know, uh, uh, Andrew Dice Clay. Um, even though he's not super edgy, I, I love Kevin James. You know, uh, I love I love whatever Larry David does on TV. I love. You know, he, he, he's out there. Um, How about you? Remember he, you remember Otto and George? I don't know. Oh, I loved Otto and George. I, you know, listen, I'll never forget the time. I don't often go into the showroom to watch acts because if you've booked them and watched enough comedy shows, there's no comics you really want to watch. Right. Well, one day I was tired. I grabbed a beer after a busy Saturday night, and I sat in the back, and Otto got on stage. And I literally was on the floor laughing. He had me laughing so bad. And, of course, nobody in the audience was laughing. You know, Otto was one of those comics, may rest in peace, that the audience either loved him that night or hated him, but the comics all loved him, you know? I mean, he was oh. just the comics. He was the classic comics comic. Yeah. Otto, he was a ventriloquist. I'm sorry? Bob Levy. You know Bob Levy. Yeah, Bob Levy's another one, yeah. Bob, Bob Levy kills me. Anytime he's on stage, I love watching him. Artie Lang, I like watching, you know? Guys like that make me laugh. Yeah, that's awesome. I was From never the, uh, do you ever wonder, you know, the guy who's going to go into a <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm that, not into that. So you're not into Jerry Seinfeld then? <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You know, and I'll say, Tate, 
changes. Taste sometimes changes. You know, sometimes I watch Jerry Seinfeld and I said, that's a pretty clever thing he just said, you know. Yeah, yeah. So well, I wish you were the I'm opening up. I wish I with the Eddie. I mean, I like all comedy, you do too, but I, I like the Eddie stuff. Something that like, you know, kind of shocks me a little bit. So yeah. I'm with you on that one. Yeah, I love the edgy stuff. I love the edgy. Listen, you know, he was a one-liner guy, but I loved Rodney Dangerfield. That guy killed me. I mean, oh, yeah. He was a funny motherfucker, but off stage, he was uh, a salty guy. Yeah, yeah, he was. But talk about edgy comedians, being that, you know, you're in New York now. Would you say New York comics are edgier than L.A. comics? Oh, much, much, in my opinion, much mm-hmm. edgier. You know, you get an L.A., you get a comic from New York here uh, who does really well, and they they generally can do pretty well in L.A., but sometimes I get L.A. comics coming to New York, and it's like it's like white bread, you know, in a city that likes pumpernickel, hero bread, you know, all sorts of bread, you know. It's, yeah. like, it's like white rice in a city that likes fried rice or something. You know, it's just, I find L.A. comics don't always have that, that flavor that that makes New York work. Missing some spice. They don't always bring the heat. The heat. Oh, look at that. You gotta bring the heat, right? You gotta bring the heat. That's good. If you if you're coming to New York, bring the heat, right? Bring the heat, you know, open it up a little bit. You know, don't be worried about and that's another thing I hate, political correctness. I don't like political correctness. That's a cancer on our business. It will destroy this business if we allow it to go uh, unchecked. I think that a comedy club should not be a safe space for people, but it should be a safe space for comedians. You know, if you're going to be insulted by anything, don't go to a comedy club. Just don't go. You've had people show up to your club to complain, right, about stuff like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Take a look at our Yelp reviews all the time. You know? I think one you, you. I think you responded to one on Facebook. She wrote you a letter about I don't know what she was upset about, and you probably you gave her the lowdown on as far as how comedy works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. There's a fire going on in yeah. my town, so the, they're calling all the uh, fire people. Uh, yeah. I I will respond to those kind of customers all the time, and I basically, you know. Here's a classic example. We had a comic on stage once, Steve Marshall. Now, Steve Marshall, he's just, his slogan is, don't behave. So he walks on a stage and he'll just go after everybody. Well, I had this audience member come to me once and say, oh, you know, I liked all the comics on the show, but Steve Marshall, he talked about autism, and I have a, a, a nephew that's autistic, and I really didn't appreciate it, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I have a, a nephew that's autistic. What does that have to do with what he's talking about on stage? I mean, he's he's making light of a situation that involved somebody that happened to be autistic. But, he, you know, he also talked about Jews. He talked about Italians. He talked about blacks. He's an equal opportunity offender. So if you're going to, yeah. you know, take that kind of position, don't go to a comedy club. Somebody, you know, when you have 200 people in the room, five comics, each telling a couple of hundred jokes or a hundred jokes in a 20-minute set, something is going to set off somebody, you know? I mean, you can't be perfect record, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully that won't get get carried away because, you know, comedians now, they're even afraid to go do sets or especially be filmed. You know, people film acts now and put them on YouTube, by the way. And the next thing you know, comedians were being judged and this and that. 
this whole cancel culture is ridiculous because look at look at Ellen DeGeneres, right? What's the complaint about her that I'm hearing? That she's not nice to people? Mm. So she's not nice. There are a lot yeah. of people that are not nice. She right. should lose her TV show because she's not nice? Then don't go on her show. You know? ridiculous. Don't, don't be a part of it if that's what it is. I mean, you know what you're getting into. And some people make the argument, well, I went there. I didn't know she was going to be nasty. So what? She's nasty. Get a backbone. You're on Ellen, so you should be happy. You know, you got yeah. exposure, right? There's always complaining, whether it's you. I remember I used to get complaints the same way. Oh, Mike Robert, Mike Robert, this. And I used to say, you know what? I'm here to get results. I'm not here to make friends. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you want you want to make nice to everybody, fine, but you know. Because at the end of the day, if, you, if they if they get rid of you, it's your, your name and your face out on that's on the line, not not these producers, right? That's right. You know, and like you know, like I said, with Ellen DeGeneres, so she's not a nice person. Who cares how she is? You know, I don't care. Is, is she funny? Is I don't watch her show. I never found it entertaining to me. But if someone likes her, why should they stop watching her? Because some guest was insulted that, you know, they didn't kiss their ass. Or maybe there weren't two bottled waters in, at room temperature in the green room. I mean, you know, who cares? Ridiculous. All I know is she cares about elephants. And that's good, that's good by me, man. She loves elephants. Hey, let me ask you. So now you got the Broadway Comedy Club. And now you have also the... Greenwich Comedy Club, right? Greenwich Village Comedy Club on McDougal Street. That's two. Two comedy yeah, clubs. So in 2014, mm -hmm. um, I sold New York Comedy Club to, to a couple of guys that were working for me at the time. And the main reason, you know, there were a couple of reasons. One, I had this crazy neighbor over there that was calling the police on me every night. She hated my guts. I was so focused on Greenwich Village Comedy Club, which I opened in 2012, and it was on McDougal Street, a really busy block. The, the, the club took off and was an incredible success. Broadway was a, an incredible success. And I guess the success of Broadway took away from a little bit from New York Comedy Club. It just didn't have the location. It was over on the east side in the 20s. And it was hard to get those tourists to get over there when they had a choice of going to 53rd and 8th. And then... For a while, the Laugh Factory opened up on 42nd and 8th. And so, you know, the business became very centered in either Times Square or McDougal Street. So I took the opportunity and I sold me. And plus, I ran out of kids. I had one kid at Greenwich and one kid at Broadway. Right. So I didn't really have anybody left to, to run um, New York. And so it was at that time that... I made the very hard decision to sell something that was a part of my life for 25 years. And now that you have two clubs going on and with this pandemic crisis in New York, how is that affecting you now? Well, you're, you're, you're getting hit twice now. You got, you got two it's comedy clubs. Now. I'm doing this show tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, no, I do this show anytime. But the thing is, is that yeah, I, I don't know. The, the governor and the mayor here have some kind of crazy, you know, this morning it was in the paper that de Blasio apparently said, we're not opening up indoor dining in New York until there's a vaccine. Now, are you mm. kidding? Mm. I mean, you know, do you think there'll be any restaurants? You know, he goes, and in the interview he goes, well, we're opening restaurants for outdoor dining in June of 2021. Yeah, really? So what's that restaurant? 
What's that restaurant going to do in November, December, January, February, March, and April? When April it's 50 degrees sometimes in New York, you're not going to be eating outdoors. So do you think there's going to be any restaurants open in this city in six months? Well, do, you no. have a re, do you have a reopening date plans for the comedy clubs? No. We were supposed to reopen in phase four, which would have been somewhere around early August. And at the last moment, the governor announced that he'll open uh, phase four all over the state, but not in New York for whatever reason. Then New York finally met all of the metrics that the governor was looking for. And there's still been no announcement on indoor dining or indoor entertainment. And, you know, as far as those two are concerned, as of right now, they're on record of saying indoor dining and indoor entertainment is closed indefinitely. So it's like, how do I make plans for my life? You know, I'm, if I was 42, I'd have one thing in life, but now I'm 62. Like, do I start thinking about retiring or do I hold on and, until they make some kind of decision in two years when there's a vaccine. I don't know what to do. And there's a lot of people like me. And I think right now, a bunch of restaurants have gotten together and they've, they're they filing a lawsuit against the city and the state. And I think the Restaurant Alliance is thinking about joining that suit because it's really kind of gotten out of hand. You know, I mean, you have two people that are making a decision and I can understand the decision if there was some kind of reason to say we can't do this. But in Westchester, they're allowed to have indoor dining. And Long Island, they're allowed to have indoor dining at reduced capacity. So how can you sit there and tell me you don't want to open indoor dining in New York City because there are droplets of air that go through the air and... <laughs> you know, uh, go through the air conditioning system and are recirculated. But that doesn't happen in Westchester or in Long Island or right. upstate New York. And what about an airplane? Can you think of anything unhealthier to get on than an airplane with recirculated air? I mean, you know, uh, you can disinfect that airplane all day long. If some asymptomatic person gets on there, and, you know, people don't always behave that great on an airplane. The lights go out. They pull down their mask for a second to breathe. You know what I mean? You could get exposed to a lot of stuff on an airplane, an airline terminal, Grand Central Terminal. Listen, you could sit there and disinfect the New York City subways all day long. If you get somebody, some homeless guy that comes in, mm-hmm. you don't know what he has. He's not wearing, he's not, you know, socially distancing or, or wearing a mask all the time. I mean... So it's amazing that it's, it's amazing. It's the biggest cities like New York is shut down, LA is shut down, and then you. I tell you right now, all the comedy clubs in Texas are open, fifty percent capacity. You have to wear a mask. They do all the guideline rules, and so far, so good. You know, thank God, nothing's. Which happened. leads me to believe there's a good chance that this all might get s- disappear. Right after election day. <laughs> I hope because you're right. It sounds sort right. of a little political to me, doesn't it? I mean, it does. That's what I'm saying. The biggest cities like New York, LA, shut down, and then you have Texas, which is also big, but they're operating the comedy clubs. And then half of Florida is open, the other half is reduced capacity. Listen, there are some things I don't see being able to open in a, in a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Like, sing, you know, bars where single people hang out on top of each other and they're talking to each other. Uh, or, you know, when you're shoulder to shoulder watching a football game, that's one thing. But, you know, you come to a, a comedy club that if my room seats 160 people and you let me open up 40 seats, I'm pretty sure I could get people six feet away from each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we could disinfect the room like any other business does. We can have hand sanitizers all over the place, plexiglass. We have protocols in place to protect the comedians. So why don't I get an opportunity to open like other businesses? You know, bowling alleys? You're telling me that's a... a, a you sticking your fingers in a bowling ball that's been used by 20 other people or you're putting your feet in a shoe that's oh, more yeah. yeah. that's health and the air conditioning system you think they're spending a lot of money on air conditioning filtration systems and bowling alleys i mean come on it's crazy well it seems like the whole new thing now al is uh zoom shows zoom what do you feel about Zoom shows? I'll tell you what I feel. I don't personally. I don't like them. But what do you think? Well, listen. If you're a comic and you're used to hearing laughs, Zoom is useless. I mean, you can't. You're, it's like you're performing, and <laughs> it's like you and I doing the jokes right now. We don't right. know if they're working or not. Right. And I don't see anybody going to get rich on Zoom shows. I mean, you know, will technology improve on those things where they can get audience feedback and allow mm-hmm. the audience to laugh? Maybe, but I think these are all band-aids for when the clubs actually can open up again. And you know, call me a dinosaur or old school, but if you can, you know, if a comic could be doing thirty Zoom shows a month, the second those clubs open up, you think anybody's going on Zoom anymore? I mean, there might be some uses, but really, Mike, we've known about this technology. It's maybe a lot better now with bandwidth improvements and stuff, but it was called streaming. Now. The idea you could do a show from Broadway Comedy Club and send that signal out to areas of the country that might not be big enough to support stand-up comedy, their own club, like, you know, mountainous areas or, uh, or you know, very rural areas that don't right. have that's density to have a club, mm-hmm. then, you know, they might pay for Five dollars on a Saturday to get comedy live from New York and and see you know some of the top acts in town you know, mm-hmm. or you take a Thursday and you take a big act and you know give them a good deal like an Andrew Dice Clay and they can perform in front of your live audience. They're getting the feedback, but you also can send that signal out all over, and the comic gets an opportunity to make a nice amount of money. Because if you can get a thousand people at thirty dollars or twenty five dollars or twenty dollars a head to watch a show, you know, I mean, you, you do the math. Plus the live audience on a Thursday could be good, yeah. good money. Sure. Well, for my final question now for the evening is this: Do you believe that stand-up comedy will ever go back to what it was once this pandemic is over, or has stand-up changed forever? No, I think we're going to go back. I, I think. You know, people want to get out of the house already. You know, if you look at the demographic for comedy clubs, it's generally early 20s to early 40s. I mean, there are people in their 50s that go to comedy clubs, you know, they're, you know, in 40s too. But the heaviest demographic are the demographic of people that are not that concerned as much about COVID because they recover from it very quickly if they got it. And most young people probably, 
if they tested a lot, would find they have the antibodies and have had it already. You know, I mean, so I think what's eventually going to happen if they don't if they don't figure out a vaccine or you know medical things that can make you feel better once you get it, then a decision has to be made at some point that we have to start opening up the economy. There's not going to be an economy to go back to. First of all, right. you've got a big cliff that we just went. People just lost $600 a week, you know, that extra money they were getting on their unemployment, but they don't have a job to go back to. So what's right. going to happen here? Rents aren't going to get paid. If rents don't get paid, the landlords can't pay their mortgages or their taxes. There's going to be defaults all over the place. This economy is going to collapse entirely. So they got to start thinking of ways to open up. Maybe, maybe the decision has to belong to individuals. If you're a person that has a lot of underlying conditions, then stay home. Don't go out. You know, make that choice. Make that choice. If you decide to go out, wear a mask. Wear the goggles, you know, wear gloves if it makes you feel better. But you can't shut down the whole world. It's, it's getting to a point. And listen, I'm in that high-risk group. I, I got high blood pressure. I'm overweight. I'm 62. You know, I'm very careful what I do. I mean, you know, I have to be. But, you know, if you want to have a world to go back to, you got to start opening up soon. It's just this is not sustainable. Right. Well, hopefully they still live off the land. No, I'm not going to live off the land. I I, I want to be able to go back to the Broadway Comedy Club and do some comedy. How's that? That's what we should be doing. Yeah. 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 So hopefully that all change and we'll be able to go back to the clubs and laugh like the good old days. And uh, so tell everybody if they want to reach you, especially comedians, they want to reach you with tapes or this advice. Can nah, I reach you at all? <laughs> well, first of all, I would say read the book here. Right. right here. On a dare, How I Built a Comedy Empire in 30 Short Years, available on Amazon. If you want to reach me, you can um, reach me on the websites, Broadway Comedy Club at gmail.com. You could reach me at Broadway Comedy Club or Greenwich Village website. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can message me on, on uh, Facebook Messenger, you know, just... A million ways to get a hold of people nowadays. And don't send a tape. I don't have a VCR. Mm, there <laughs> send you go. a link. A link. A link. A link. And, and by the way, I read the book. I'm almost done with it now. It's a great book, man. It took me down Thank memory lane. I really, really enjoyed it. People say it's a really good, quick read. And it's not complicated. And, and I think if you're in the business, you got to read this book. Because it is, yeah. it, it's a great, the best investment you'll make in your career. You know, there are books out there that tell you how to write a joke, how to do a joke. This is telling you the angles, you know, how to really get ahead, the way to get ahead from a club owner. And that's invaluable advice. And that's what you, the comedian's got to learn. It's, it's more than just being funny, but you got to know the shortcuts. You got to know the business end. And you put that in there. You yeah, know, you got to know how to hustle. You got to know how to hustle. Exactly. You know, all these books tell you how to write a joke, how to construct a joke, how to do this. Or that. Yeah, all right. Great. Now you did all that. How are you going to get ahead? Yeah. This book will teach you how to get ahead. It will teach you how to hustle, how to get stage time. Al Martin, that is why they call you the New York City King of Comedy, my friend. It was great Thank catching you. up with you, Al. I really, uh, 
uh, it was great talking to you. And hopefully, when this is all over, I'll be able to go back to New York and uh, we can talk face to face. Have a cigar. I hope so, buddy. I hope so. All right. You take care, Al. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for tuning in. All right. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everybody. All right. Love you, man. Take care. All right. Love you too. Bye-bye.